Yes, so we thank you, Lord, that you are uh, our God, but also our Saviour, that you set us free, you wash away sins. We pray this morning you'll open our eyes as well by your Spirit and your Word to know you and send us out from here to live in your freedom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, please do take a seat, and if you'd like to turn back to Matthew, it's basically chapter 8, the first section we're looking at this morning, but we've just picked up the end of chapter 7, as you saw in the reading. So page 972 in the Church Bibles, if you're using that. Watching some of the uh, very dramatic events in British politics this last week, uh, I was struck by the surprising similarity to some of the key features of the gospel story. Uh, What do I mean by that, you say? Well, there's a public figure here, as there is in Parliament, calling for decisive loyalty, for a choice to follow. But there's also, as he makes that call, there's a polarisation happening between people who hear that call, uh, people that want to follow the leader, as it were, and those that choose to disregard him or even become enemies of him. It's probably safe to say the similarity between Boris Johnson and Jesus ends at that moment, perhaps. But Matthew uses this picture in his Gospel of the kingdom of heaven because he sees Jesus, he presents Jesus as the king to us, to be followed, the one to be obeyed, whose word is final. If you were here last Christmas, we looked at the beginning of the story, the birth of Jesus, and here is Jesus in Matthew, coming from a whole line of Israel's kings. He gives the family tree in chapter 1. He describes Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, Several times in those early chapters, he shows how Jesus calls disciples to follow him, the Messiah, the King. In chapter 5 to 7, he then goes up a mountain and teaches the way of the kingdom. We call that the Sermon on the Mount. And that sermon ends where we started our reading in verse 28 of chapter 7. With those words, when Jesus finished saying these things... The crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one with authority. They heard in the words of Jesus the words of God in a way that they hadn't ever before with any human teacher. And today we look at this section of Matthew's Gospel, chapters 8 to 12, and we're going to see a lot more of these wonderful miracles of Jesus. We've got two of them recorded in our passage today. We'll also see further teaching with authority from Jesus when we get to chapter 10. But the big question all the way Matthew is asking us is, who is this? Who do you think this is? Is this, as he claims to be, with his authority to teach, his authority to work miracles, is he God's son? Is he the Messiah, the Christ, the King? In which case, follow him. Or is he, in your opinion, a fraud, in which case, despite the evidence Matthew 
gives us and the warnings Jesus gives against doing this, in which case reject him. So let's get into these first two miracles, shall we? And I've, just got, I've got three headings this morning. The first one, we'll look at both together. And the first heading is simply this. Jesus restores the sick to God's blessing. Both of these are in some way healing miracles, aren't they? The leper and the centurion's servant with paralysis. Now, leprosy first. It's, it's a disease that affects the, the nerves in the skin, especially hands and feet. In the ancient world, no antibiotics. It was hugely feared in the developing world. It still is because the microbe that, that causes it just can't be eradicated. Um, a kind of natural cure doesn't necessarily happen. And yet in verse 3, what did Jesus do? He reaches out and touches this man with leprosy and with a word, I'm willing to be clean, he's healed. Extraordinary, what we would call supernatural miracle. The centurion's servant, the second miracle from verse 5. The centurion meets Jesus, but the servant, the sick person who's lying at home paralyzed, doesn't even see Jesus in this story, does he? His master finds Jesus, tells him about him. He lies in his house suffering, verse 6, with the paralysis. Uh, people think this is possibly polio. Uh, he's not been born with this. It's, it's a, a sickness, a disease that's come upon him. And then in verse 13 again, Jesus restores him to God's blessing, to health. Doesn't even go to the bedside to touch him this time, but a kind of remote control from a distance. Simply uses words, verse 13. Go, he says to the centurion, let it be done just as you believed it would, and that's, uh, at that moment the servant was healed. Instantaneous, complete. Matthew says to us, who do you know that can do these kind of miracles? Where does that kind of power come from? What do you think? And Matthew's saying, without a shadow of doubt, Jesus is no mere teacher. He's a great teacher. He's no mere teacher. He's no mere magician, certainly. The power of God is at work through the words and actions of Jesus. He restores the sick to God's blessing. Now, what does that mean? Well, in chapter 11, it might just be worth flicking over two pages in the church Bible to chapter 11. The beginning of that chapter, Jesus is asked by John the Baptist, uh, one of his supporters and relatives, is he really the Messiah, the King? And he replies in verse 4, go and tell John what you see and hear. You see this. The blind see, those who are lame paralyzed, walk, so that's the centurion's servant, those with leprosy are cleansed, we've just seen the leper cleansed, and he goes on uh, with a number of other dramatic miracles that we will see in coming weeks. What's that mean? Well, Jesus is actually quoting there from Isaiah, the prophet who spoke, who preached hundreds of years before him and predicted under God that God would send a Messiah, a rescuer, a king, who would do all those things. Jesus is quoting them, that the blind would see, the lame would walk. Jesus is saying, 
This is what it means. This is why I'm doing these things, to show you who I am. That I am God's servant, God's king, God's, God's saviour, come to restore sick people, amongst others, to God's blessing. He does the work of God among the people of God through the power of God. Now today, I think it's, it's arguing carefully from the, the New Testament, from the Bible, we should neither side with people who say all that Jesus healing, his authority, the kingdom of God, that was just for then, he's now back in heaven, that doesn't happen today. Because uh, Jesus is here by his spirit after all. Nor should we say, on the other hand, that Jesus, therefore, will heal every kind of sickness as we expect it to in the way that we demand he does. Because the Bible doesn't promise that either. Uh, Many of us, we've prayed for healing, physical healing, for other people perhaps, and we've sometimes seen that in the way we expected, sometimes perhaps not. And the only complete healing, wholesome blessing of God is, of course, in heaven in the new creation. But if you are praying for someone who's sick, you and I need to pray, don't we, with the confidence that Jesus has the power of God and the compassion of God to hear and answer and to meet our need in the way that he knows best. He always meets our need with his grace. He always hears our cries with his mercy. He restores the sick to God's blessing. But the fascinating thing with these two stories is this. As dramatic as they are, these two healings are not for Matthew the main importance of these stories. The drama of who Jesus is and what his mission's all about lies somewhere connected but elsewhere. That's the next two points. I'm going to look now at the first story of the leper and then at the centurion. Here's the the next of our two points. The story of the leper, Matthew 8, verses 1 to 4. This is about how Jesus restores the excluded person to God's family. This is the mission of Jesus, to restore excluded people to God's family. You see, in the Old Testament, to have leprosy was not just or even primarily an illness. It was a social and indeed a moral condition. It's not clear to me, to others perhaps, why leprosy especially was seen as as morally unclean before God, not just an illness. But that outward uncleanness of the skin was somehow a sign of the inner uncleanness of our hearts, what we call sin. The rejection of God, the attitude to God that says, I don't want to follow you, I want to follow my own way. The choice of wrong rather than right. You see, God is pure, and he calls us, his people, to be pure. And that means that if if we are impure, and leprosy is a sign of that, then your uncleanness, if you have leprosy, this is how Leviticus, the Old Testament, puts it, will contaminate all of us. So what do we do if you have, or if I have leprosy? Well, you and I, we have to avoid contact with anyone. Lest we contaminate you before God and make you unclean as well. So if you have leprosy, 
you are banished from the village. You're not given antibiotics. You're banished from the village. That's the spiritual equivalent, really, of a, uh, like a parent with a rebellious toddler, and you send them to the naughty step, don't you, until they change their ways. You have leprosy. You're sent into quarantine until you're cured. Or actually, as the New Testament puts it, until you are cleansed. Because the spiritual cleansing is what matters most here. So the leper comes to Jesus. Do you see this in verse 2? And he asks, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Not you can heal me, you can make me clean. He's desperate, so he breaks the rules and approaches Jesus. Shouldn't really have done that. He's respectful, even worshipful. He kneels before Jesus and he's faithful. He doesn't say, if you have any sort of magic or tricks or medicine, you can help me. He says, if you are willing, I know you can do this, but are you willing to touch a leper, to cleanse the unclean? Wonderful picture, isn't it? Jesus, even more wonderfully, reaches out, touches the leper, And instead of saying, I think you need to wait till the leprosy's gone and then you can go and see the priest, he just says, I'm willing, be clean. And it says again, his leprosy is cleansed from that moment. Now, a couple of little things here. Jesus tells him to keep this quiet. Probably that's because Jesus wants to be known and followed as the Messiah, as the saviour from God, not as a kind of celebrity Miracle worker. He tells him to show his cleansing to the priests. Not because, in a sense, he needs to. He's fully cleansed. He's restored to God's family, having been excluded. But, as he says, as a witness to them. Almost, I think it's a way of Jesus saying, I want everyone to know that you are cleansed. This needs to be done properly so that no one can ever say, oh, no, 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 you, you, you haven't been and seen the priest as it says you have to in the Old Testament. So it's a public way of protecting this man from any further exclusion, a testimony. But here's the real point of this, this extraordinary story. Do you see there's only one thing the leper does to receive this cleansing? This is the invitation for you or me. If our hearts are feeling a bit unclean, we're feeling uh, in some way shut out or far from God. Here it is, verse 2. A man with leprosy came and knelt before Jesus. It's all he did. It's all you or I ever have to do to find the cleansing of Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? He just came. It's a common word in Matthew. He came, he came. Jesus says, come to me all who are heavy laden. If you know that you're far from God, that you've messed up, that in some way you, you need God's cleansing, you do not need to clean your act up first and then approach him. You do not need to get the mess out of your heart and be a good person first and then you're worthy to come to Jesus. Just come as you are. That's the gospel invitation. Just come as you are. He will cleanse you from your sins. He'll restore you to God's family. He died on the cross in your place so that your sins could be cleansed and washed away. Not so that you then had to try harder to be good enough. He's carried our guilt away. Just come. 
Could it be this morning that someone here, God is, he is saying to you, just come this morning. There's nothing to stop you. Just come. And here's the second, I think, dramatic reason why the mission of Jesus is so extraordinary for us. It's not just that he restores excluded people to God's family. He restores outsiders to God's heavenly feast. Let's move and now look at the centurion, verses 5 to 13. Now, here's a centurion. He, he's a foreigner. Uh, he's commanding around 100 soldiers, probably based in Capernaum, where this happens, recruited from Syria, the Middle East, by the Romans. He's a powerful man as a centurion, commanding all these troops, holding power over the occupied people of Galilee. He's compassionate. He clearly is very concerned for his servant, who he says has been struck down by something, polio perhaps, lying at home, paralyzed, and in great pain. And yet there's every reason why he comes to Jesus expecting Jesus to put obstacles in the way to helping him. He wants healing for his servant, but he hardly dares ask Jesus. Why is that? Well, it's because he is a non-Jew, a foreigner, and Jesus is Jewish, a Jewish teacher. And to many Jews of Jesus' day, there's no question of mixing with Gentiles, let alone going to the house to help them and uh, heal their servant. Some Jews even call Gentiles dogs. So that's why he doesn't, in verse 6, dare ask even a direct question. Uh, Could you come and heal my servant, Jesus? Do you see what he does? It's very, he's fishing politely. My servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. He kind of puts it out there and waits to see what Jesus will do. Now, in our version, Jesus responds in verse 7, saying, I'll come and heal him. But actually... More recent translations have picked up the sense of Jesus' original words there. It's probably a question, not a promise. Shall I come and heal him? Not, I will come and heal him. It's a parallel to a similar story in chapter 15, where a Canaanite woman comes to Jesus, again wanting help for a sick daughter. And Jesus, again, is initially quite cool, quite off-putting, testing her as he does the centurion. He's pushing the centurion, saying, come on, I want to know more about you and your faith, your relationship to me. Should I come and heal? Should I, a Jewish rabbi, come and heal the servant of you in your Gentile home? And the centurion responds, doesn't he, in verse Eight, not easily deterred. Look, I, I, I kind of saying, I don't ask you to defile yourself by coming into my house. I'm not worthy that you come under my roof. I'm a Gentile, unclean. But you don't have to. You have such power, Jesus. Your words have power. Just say the word and he'll be healed. You haven't got to come with me. See what he's doing? And then a brilliant piece of logic in verse 9. I'm a soldier under authority. So again, he's saying, look, the emperor's delegated authority to me. So if I tell a soldier to go, he goes. If I say, come, he comes. My power's from the emperor, and it's absolute. My word goes. 
And then he says, Jesus, I know that you are the same. Your word goes. What you say happens. The difference is this. My authority is, from the emperor is actually less, and yours is greater. Yours is from God. What God says, you say, and it happens. Just say the word. And that's faith, isn't it? Again, if you're exploring faith this morning, that is a great definition of faith in the New Testament. Faith is taking the words of Jesus at face value, trusting in the power of Jesus' words. And even Jesus is astonished, it says, by the faith of this foreign soldier. He says, verse 10, I haven't found anyone among God's people in Israel with such great faith. And he says, it's like Daniel Fark discovering that the greatest fan of Norwich City, the one that's collected the most programs, the most players' autographs, been to the most away matches for the last 10 seasons, lives in a certain town in Ipswich. <laughs> Jesus, I, I can't believe this faith this man has. And he's a foreigner. And then he declares in verse 11, I say to you, the wider point, many will come like this man standing here from east and west meaning other foreigners, other Gentiles, and will take their place at the feast with those great heroes of faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The kingdom, he's saying, is open to all like this centurion who will just put their faith in the words of Jesus. Now, there is a warning, isn't there, attached to it in verse 12, to those that hear and refuse the words of Jesus, the subjects of the kingdom, he means any people of Israel, not all Jews, that's very important to say, not all Jews, but all in Israel who refuse to receive Jesus as their Messiah. All who refuse my words will be thrown outside to a place of darkness, a place of bitter regret and anguish. So the inverted commas insiders become outsiders, and the inverted commas outsiders, that's probably all of us, before we find Christ, we become those invited to the feast. The writer Philip Yancey tells a story uh, reflecting on this image of the heavenly feast, of a lavish wedding banquet that was planned, booked by a couple at a luxury hotel in Boston in the States in 1990. A few days before the invitations went out, the groom got cold feet. So the fiancé incensed, went back to the hotel and, and explained it had to cancel the wedding, wanted the money back, and they were very sympathetic, but they said, I'm sorry, but it says in the small print, you have to pay us almost the entire cost, minus a very small amount of the deposit. So she thought, she said, well, in that case, if I've got to pay that money, let's just go ahead and throw a party. Not quite a wedding party now, but, but let's have a banquet and let's invite to it all the homeless of the streets of Boston. All those from residential homes that have not been to a party for decades. And so on the night of the party, people who would have otherwise spent the night on the streets were treated to champagne, 
chocolate cake, dancing to the night to the big band tunes. Outsiders brought into the feast and insiders who didn't want to be there excluded. Now, if you look at verse 12, it's a hard verse, isn't it? We don't like this teaching of Jesus, do we? Uh, We love to think that somehow everyone will be included in God's kingdom in the end. But Jesus is consistent in teaching this, that those that refuse his lordship in this life will not be forced to live under it in eternity. Those that don't ask him to restore them to his heavenly feast won't be forced to attend it. Now, he's not saying, Jesus, as I've said, that somehow God's plans move from Jews to Gentiles. He's saying it's moved from any idea that there's a privileged few and excluded many to the idea that anyone with faith, like that centurion, can be there. Faith, not family, not fortune. Faith is the marker on your entry ticket. So, as I finish, are you troubled as the centurion was or on behalf of someone who's in great need, as he was? Well, so was he. And yet he found the answer in Christ. He simply came. That's you just this morning. Would you just simply trust the words of Jesus? That's faith. Say to him, I'm going to trust your words from now on. Everything you say, I'm going to believe it and do it. And you will have a seat at the heavenly feast. Maybe you're praying for someone else to come to Jesus. Uh, We pray for five here, don't we, church members here? And yet they seem so far away still. Well, so is the centurion praying for someone in need. Maybe you've got a husband who's suspicious of church. Well, actually, so is a centurion. And yet, says Jesus, many will come from east and west and take their seats at the heavenly feast. Pray on for that person. You and I will be very surprised, I think, when we sit down at the heavenly feast at the people God's put next to us. Maybe you are on the outside still and looking into faith this morning. Who is this Jesus? You're nervous about church. You've not been before. You don't feel perhaps worthy to be under this roof. Well, so is a centurion. What counts is not whether you feel you're an insider, but who Jesus says is an insider. Just put your faith in him. Matthew wrote this incredible book of his to help people like you and me to find Jesus, to find and reach out with faith, to find our way into the kingdom of God. If you want a copy of this gospel, you haven't got a Bible at home, just come and ask me at the end. I'll be there by the door because we've got lots of uh, gospels of Matthew. We'll just give you one to take away and read or give you one to take and give to someone. And lastly, maybe you just, someone here, you need to hear the warning of Jesus in verse 12. It's a perilous thing to go another day refusing the words of Jesus. You and I do not want to be people who thought we belonged, who had the privilege because of family, because we were in church for many years even, and yet never put our faith in Jesus' words. We don't want to take the risk, do we, of being in the dark for eternity. 
This series is entitled Fear and Freedom because it's all about Matthew and how Jesus sets us free from sin, from all that holds us, from God's blessing. And faith, as we've seen, is the way to find that freedom in Jesus. Faith is what we live by, what we stand on, what we find connects us to Jesus, and faith is what admits us by grace to the heavenly feast that Christ has in store for all who trust him. Let's pray. As we pray, it may be that some of us who want to continue thinking and praying over what Jesus has said this morning to us, those invitations of his, uh, what it means simply to come to him and trust his words. Again, come, come and find me at the end or find someone to pray with after the service. Talk to someone. I'm going to pray a part of a prayer that we pray as part of our communion because the table, Jesus' bread and wine, uh, pictures of his body given on the cross for us are such a great picture, aren't they, of the welcome to his feast. And we just simply come and kneel and open our hands. We don't presume to come to this, your table, Lord, trusting our own righteousness, but in your manifold, multiple and varied mercies. We're not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same, Lord, whose nature is always to have mercy. So teach us to put our trust in your words. Help us to come and kneel before you with open hands and hearts. Hear our prayers. And by faith, would you grant us and those we pray for a place in your heavenly feast. Amen.